Well, we have rounded the corner and we are in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And this morning we have uh, four verses. I think we gave um, four weeks or five weeks to the resurrection. Very appropriate for such a uh, wonderful topic. Uh, this morning we're going to look at just four verses, uh, the first four of First Corinthians 16. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So we have just finished one of the greatest doctrinal chapters in the entire Bible, uh, chapter 15 of um, 1 Corinthians, uh, an entire chapter devoted to the subject of the resurrection. Not only the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but our resurrection as well. And Paul finished the chapter with a glimpse into our future. You know, it's, a lot of people want to know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen next? We like to know the future. And Paul gives us the future at the end of chapter 15. And the future of every believer. And he showed that not only will we be resurrected from the dead, but praise his name, we are going to be given a new body. And I need one. And I think most of you do too. Just saying. Um, we will be resurrected from the dead. We will be given a new body. And it will be a glorious body, incorruptible, um, and immortal. So in other words, it'll never decay, it'll never get sick, it'll never have the problems that you are currently facing with your body. You know, you get up in the morning and you go, it doesn't work like it used to work. And um, it's corrupting, it's, it's falling apart. And uh, eventually, if the Lord doesn't come back, it's going to die. And so he's going to give us a new body, a different kind of body. We're still going to know who you are. We're still going to recognize you. But it's a new body, and it will be one that is incorruptible. And that means, too, not only will it not decay, but it means that we won't sin anymore. There will be no more sin. There will be nothing uh, to attract us to sin or to, to uh, uh, tempt us to, to follow after sin. And it says immortal. That means we will never die. We will never face death again. And it is a body that will not be subject to sin and death. Our resurrection will be the culmination of the victory provided by God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our glorious future should be a significant motivation for us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ in the present because we're not in the future yet. Now, he's told us about it. I can't wait to be there, but I've got a little bit of living left to do. I don't know how much more living, but some. And um, 
the future promise really should be a tremendous motivation to live for him now in the present. So Paul challenges us at the end of chapter 15 to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We should be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that we have such a glorious future awaiting us. And it should be what happens when we wake up in the morning. We should not be thinking so much about the body that's aching and, and, and paining and, and, and uh, pining away and all the rest of it, but rather, what can I do to please the Lord today? What can I do to um, abound in the work of the Lord? So as we move into chapter 16, we are immediately met with one of the most practical ways we can be abounding in the work of the Lord. And so we transition from a very strong doctrinal uh, treatise in, in uh, chapter 15, and we are met now with a boots-on-the-ground chapter. How can we apply um, this, these principles that we're going to learn about in chapter 16 to our lives? So the first four verses, we'll just say that it deals with Christian financial planning. You know, there are a lot of, I get, maybe it's my age, but I get all kinds of uh, um, junk mail in my mail every week about <clears throat> uh, financial planning seminars, retirement seminars, come and make money seminars. You know, uh, you've never heard of such a way to, you know, to earn a living seminars. I mean, it's, and, and many of them, you know, offer free meals to, to boot, you know, come and there's limited tickets and you'll get two of them for you and your spouse. And I go, who needs it? I have better financial planning right here in the scripture and, it, and it's, um, literally out of this world, okay? So <clears throat> Paul is going to talk about Christian financial planning here in the first four verses. It's all about the money God has given us and how we should use it. Now in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, he's going to expand on this, but this is a good place to start uh, this morning. So in verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. So Paul speaks of the collection uh, without further explanation. And so we have to read this and say, okay, well, the Corinthians must have already known what he was talking about. Because it's not clear yet what he's talking about. But when he just uses the phrase, the collection, they go, oh, yeah, you talked to us about that before. And he, he had. Um, <clears throat> so they were aware of what he was talking about. The collection was a gift of money, he says uh, later, for the saints. And we know from this and other chapters of the New Testament that this gift of money was meant to help the poor believers in Jerusalem. And uh, we see that actually in verse 3 of this chapter. This was not the first time he had brought this subject up to the church. And uh, so the Corinthians were already aware of what he was talking about. And uh, Paul had not only urged Corinth to take a collection or to set aside the collection, but wherever Paul preached, wherever he uh, saw churches planted, wherever he encouraged believers to grow, he talked about this collection that they were to set aside and to participate in gathering a collection of money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. 
we read about this collection also in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to uh, make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. And when we get to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, we learn that the churches in Macedonia were so moved by the need of the poor saints in Jerusalem that they actually impoverished themselves to provide for these believers. Now, we don't know all the reasons why the church in Jerusalem was so poor, but we do know from a number of scriptures some of the reasons that uh, they, they uh, may have been suffering. So let's think back a little bit. <clears throat> when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again the third day, and he showed himself to the disciples or to a number of people, uh, 500 at one time, proving his resurrection. Eventually, he ascended back to the Father and he uh, told his disciples to wait. Um, and they waited in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit of God was given to them. That was the beginning of the church. When the Holy Spirit of God came upon them that day of Pentecost, and they went out from there and they began to preach. They were in Jerusalem and they preached and thousands of people were converted from Judaism to Christ. Um, many people who were there who were uh, Gentile converts also heard. And there were many people from many countries who heard the gospel and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We read that passage and we think, oh yeah, well that's great. All these people came to know the Lord. But it was a tremendous upheaval in the religious center of Jerusalem. And it, it turned things upside down. And then the saints who had just come to know the Lord. Can you imagine trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And not long after that, as a new believer, facing massive persecution. Persecution to the point where Paul himself, when he was Saul and an unbeliever... Uh, he would come into houses and disrupt families. He would take people away as prisoners, imprison them because they were trusting in Jesus Christ. And uh, there was a tremendous upheaval in the religious center right there in Jerusalem. So much was, were the saints persecuted that many of them actually fled from uh, Jerusalem and went to other places where the persecution was not so severe. So, Think about the conditions and think about what was happening. Now, you can imagine if you were raised in a good, godly, well, godly, it was a, a good Jewish home. Maybe they were very um, desirous to please the Lord the way they knew how. And uh, you, you come to your father or your wife or your husband or your relatives and you say, you know what? It means nothing. We have been working our way to, to be pleasing to God, and we can't. We cannot keep the law. What? You know? And we are trusting in Jesus Christ, who paid sin's penalty for us. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. 
you can imagine the kind of res response you're going to get from your family members. And many of the early believers were ostracized. They were kicked out of their families. It happens today in many Muslim countries where a, a Muslim is converted to Jesus Christ and they are persecuted, they are put out of their family, and many of them are killed. It was happening in Jerusalem. It was happening in the early church. And we see this uh, throughout the book of Acts, the, the persecution that they faced. Many of them were despised, like the Lord, and rejected. They were cut off from fellowship and support, and they were suffering because they were Christians. Many of the early Christians were uh, likely fired from their jobs. You can't work here anymore. You don't believe like we do. You know, there were no unions to, to help them. There were no laws against discrimination, and uh, they were cast out of their work. So now you can imagine going to work on Monday morning and uh, saying, hey, you know what? I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Well, we're not here. You're fired. Get out of here. Your source of income has now dried up. You, no longer, you are no longer employed, and you're no longer employable. And so it disrupted families. As I mentioned, the, the imprisonment uh, disrupted families. And it left devastating financial effects on these families. Many of the early Christians fled from Jerusalem. They were scattered throughout the world. And what would happen in a case like that, it would leave fewer and fewer people in the church in Jerusalem to support those who had lost their jobs, those who had been ostracized, those who had been put out, those who were being persecuted. And so the financial drain on the church of uh, Jerusalem was, was enormous. In addition to this, we read in Acts chapter 11 that there was a severe famine, and it seems that the famine in particular affected uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, Judea and so on. And it says in Acts 11:27, and in those days, or in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. We know from early accounts of the church in Jerusalem that many of the believers suffered from day one as soon as they trusted in Jesus Christ. Many of the believers saw that other believers were suffering. They couldn't make ends meet. They couldn't put food on the table. They couldn't put clothes on their back. And so they said, you know what? I have a house. I have land. I have possessions. I'm going to sell them. And I'm going to put the, the money that I get from this at the apostles' feet. And the apostles, as you remember, uh, elected or said to the church to, to recognize deacons among them to take these funds and to distribute the funds to those who were in need, in particular those who were uh, widows. And so many of the believers sold all that they had to strengthen and to help, the, uh, to help one another. In Acts chapter 2, we read this, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing, da continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness 
and simplicity of heart. I really love that passage. It not only talks about the sharing that took place in the early church, but that in, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the, um, the, the loss that they were facing, they still rejoiced in their Lord. They still rejoiced in what the Lord had done uh, for them. And it says, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says this, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And this is how the early church managed to provide for one another. Now, as time went on, as I mentioned, the persecution became even more severe, and many of them fled. Um, and the, as I said, the burden became greater and greater um, upon fewer and fewer saints. And soon, there would be no more possessions to sell. I mean, once they sold everything they had, there's nothing more to sell. The money is eventually going to run out. And uh, the church in Jerusalem was now poor and suffering. And there were some among them, in particular, who were suffering great financial loss and great, um, had great burdens. And so this is where we come to in chapter 16 of Corinthians about the collection. The collection would help relieve the financial burden that had hit the church of Jerusalem so hard. But there was more. The collection was not just to show an act of kindness, to show that, hey, look, you know, you have needs, we'll give you funds that we have available. The collection would also show how Christians everywhere in the world are part of the same body. And it would show the saints in Jerusalem that those who were outside of Jerusalem, those who were in other cities, in other areas, loved them just because they loved the Lord. And so the, the love of other believers would be shown uh, to the church at Jerusalem. Corinth and the other churches of Macedonia were made up mostly of Gentile believers, whereas the church in Jerusalem was made up mostly of Jewish converts or Jewish believers. There is no longer, the Bible says, Jew or Greek. When it comes to the church, we are all one in Christ. And this gift, the collection, would demonstrate that very, uh, in, a, in a palpable way. And the money the churches were gathering would show that the bond, that, that, uh, would show that bond that we have in Christ, that unity, that oneness, that fellowship that we have in Christ. And quite frankly, it, it was the right thing to do. Not just because they were poor and they were meeting the need of poor people, not just because they were one in Christ. It was the right thing to do because the other churches outside of Jerusalem were in debt to the church of Jerusalem. You say, well, what do you mean they were in debt? Did they borrow money? No, they didn't borrow money. 
But it was right for them to repay the debt they owed. The debt was not a financial debt at all, but it was a spiritual debt. For you see, the church began in Jerusalem. And had the saints in Jerusalem not been all out for God and had not witnessed the way they had witnessed and they had not suffered the way they suffered, the gospel never would have gone out to the whole world. And so Paul is saying in, uh, in, in Romans chapter 15, Paul says that essentially, look, you would not even know Christ had it not been for the sacrifices that were made by the saints in Jerusalem. You owe them a debt, and the debt that you owe is not money. The debt is a spiritual debt. They gave to you spiritual things. Is it anything, really? to give them material things. And this is how he says it. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their, that is the the, uh, church in Jerusalem's spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. That's a great principle to know and to understand. The Gentiles never would have heard the gospel had it not been for the amazing sacrifices of the Jewish believers who gave themselves and all they had to spread the gospel in the first place. They had made themselves poor for the sake of reaching the lost and dying world. And the churches that sprang out throughout the world were indebted to the church at Jerusalem for making such sacrifices. Well, what's the application to us? We owe a debt as well. There are many people, if you think back at your life and you think back at where you are today, there are many people who made tremendous spiritual sacrifices in order for you to be saved. And it's not just this generation. I think back at generations that went before us. Many of these people, we can't pay back. You know, we're indebted to them. We, we can't pay them back. But there there is a principle that if we enjoy spiritual benefit, that the least we can do is provide material uh, provision for those who have have, um, sacrificed that way. So how can we share with them in the spiritual work they are doing? Well, Paul begins to describe how Uh, the church at Corinth could do that uh, by providing financial backing for them. All of the reasons in the back of Paul's mind included everything we've already gone over, and this is what he was talking about when he said the collection. This is what was in his mind. It's because of all these things we should put together a collection. So when it comes to financial planning, there are certain principles I think we need to know. We've gone over many of these before, but I'll just kind of run through a few of them this morning. There are certain principles that we should understand and follow. First of all, whatever we own, own, it does not belong to us. We, we always say, that's my house, that's my car, that's my job, that's my money, that, those are my possessions. That's a lie. <laughs> they are not yours. Okay? God gave them to you. He is the possessor, the owner of all these things. Now, he lets you manage them, okay? And in that sense, they're yours. 
you are the manager or the, uh, the, the steward of those things, but they don't really belong to you. And when you die, you're leaving it all behind you. God owns everything. The Bible says this, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Second, second principle that I think about when it comes to financial stewardship is that um, God himself is generous to us. Think about this. So what is the greatest gift you have ever received? You say, well, I think of a birthday present I got one time. There was this Christmas present that was really big box and out came this or that or the other thing. The greatest gift you have ever received is salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest gift you have received is a person, Jesus Christ. God loved you so much and he loved me so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's, that tops everything. There is no greater gift. And if God is generous to you, shouldn't we also be generous to others? I mean, it just kind of goes without saying but we say it anyway. The Bible says this in Romans 8:32, "He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things?" He's generous even beyond the cross. He's generous even now. We come before him and we say, "Lord, give us this day our daily bread." Is he stingy? No. If you as a father know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to follow him? then act like him. Those who are rich, give to those who are poor. The third principle I want to bring up is that our possessions, and we mentioned this just briefly, our possessions are a stewardship from God. And I, we don't have time to go over all of them, but just study the parables in the scripture. Many of the parables deal with this very subject, that God has given to us the responsibility of taking what he has given so generously to us and to make a profit. Not financial profit for ourselves, but make it work for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven. Fourth principle the Bible talks about is that we are to provide for our own household. And when you read this verse, I'll read it for you. It says... Um, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Most people, when they read that verse, say, oh yeah, well, fathers are supposed to go out and get a job, and they're supposed to work hard, and they're supposed to take care of their children. But that is not the context of that verse. That verse is actually talking about children taking care of their parents. And it's talking about those who are widows or those who are elderly. Yeah, so just look at your kids, guys. <laughs> They're the ones who have to take care of you. The Bible teaches that, that there is a principle that children have received all of these things from their parents. They are indebted to their parents to take care of them in their old age. And so I'm 60 
I have a father who's 87. I wasn't looking for my kids to take care of me yet. Not quite yet. But I have a father who's 87. And I had a mother for uh, until a couple of years ago. It, it's my responsibility to take care of them. If they have need, I am first in line. Me and my sisters are, are, have to be first in line to care for them. That is a biblical principle. Families should take care of their own. Okay. Now, it's not to deny the fact that fathers should take care of their kids, too, of course. But in the context, that is the, the meaning of that passage, that aging parents are to be taken care of by their children. Fifth principle is that we are not to be lazy. We are to work hard for the supply of our um, current necessities. In fact, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 goes so far as to say that, hey, if you're not going to work, you're not going to eat. The church is not going to support your laziness. Okay, And it is not the responsibility of the church to come in and aid those who refuse to get out and work. For a living. Now, if you can't work, you're sick or whatever. Yeah, obviously there's aid and there's help, and, and we have done this in the past as well. So, but these are some principles. The sixth principle, in light of this passage here, we are to provide for the poor and particularly the poor believers. In Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, to this rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And he sat there or stood there and he listened to those words and he goes, that's too much for me. And he walked away. He lost salvation over his love for money. In 1 John 3.17 it says this, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? It's a good question. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then Galatians 2.10 says, They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. This is in the context of um, the, the early meeting of the church. What what are things necessary in the church? You know, not eating meat offered to idols and things like that. But one of the key ingredients of the necessity of the early church and all churches that have followed is that we should remember the poor. So, go back to the beginning. The collection was to be gathered. And that brings Paul to, and us to the next point. When it comes to finance, Christian financial planning, how shall we give? How shall we give? 1 Corinthians 16.2 says this, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So let's take this, break it down uh, phrase by phrase. First of all, the day of giving. The day of giving is Sunday, the first day of the week. It shows here that already in the early church, um, they had transitioned away from the Sabbath, which is, was then and always will be Saturday, the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath, never was, never will be. So the, the Sunday is the day of the Lord's resurrection. That's what we celebrate every Sunday. We come because 
the Lord rose from the dead. Had he not risen from the dead, we wouldn't be here. So Sunday, the first day of the week, was the day appointed for giving. So it also shows that there is an order to giving. It means that we are to plan ahead. We are to plan to give um, and to give it on the first day of the week. Second, who are the participants of giving? Well, Paul says, let each one of you. So can I ask you that? Who is excluded from that? No one. Every single person is responsible. Let each one of you. You say, well, I'm poor. Are you part of the each one? Whether you are rich or you are poor, you consider uh, a woman that Jesus pointed out who had tremendous faith and, and, and offered a great gift. She was a poor widow. And she gave financially uh, almost nothing, like a penny, two pennies worth. I mean, it was nothing, two copper coins. Fin- uh, as far as uh, dollar value was concerned, it, it was nothing. But as far as the percentage of her wealth was concerned, it was everything. And she gave everything that she had, and the Lord commended her for it. She was a poor widow. And do you know what she was doing by, or, or saying by, by doing that, by giving that gift? She was saying, Lord, I'm giving this to you now, but I trust you for my daily bread tomorrow. That's what she was doing. She was essentially saying, Lord, I can trust you for my future, and so I can give you everything now, and I'll trust you for tomorrow, and then I'll trust you for the next day and the day after that. Tremendous act of faith on her part. So whether you are rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Whether you're young or old, let each one of you. Whether you are a new believer or an old believer, let each one of you. Whether it is pennies or dollars, let each one of you. I have never understood how in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. How a believer feels absolutely no obligation to give anything back to the Lord. And there are many believers who never give. They just refuse to. But in God's economy, it's very interesting. Those who are stingy with what God has already given them, with the God-given resources, they will find at the end they will have a bleak harvest. In fact, they probably won't have much harvest at all. And in the end, those who give hilariously will find an abundant future harvest. So who are the participants? Each one of us. Each one of you. The method of giving is next. It says lay something aside. So as I mentioned, the poor widow's gift was insignificant as far as cash value is concerned. But percentage-wise, she gave more than all of those who gave out of their riches. They still had their riches left over. But she gave everything. Your method of giving should have a purpose behind it. Lay something aside. Well, when you, when you read that, what it tells me is this, that giving should be premeditated. There are certain things in life that shouldn't be premeditated. You'll go to jail for them, like premeditated murder, all right? But when it comes to premeditated giving, God is going to be watching, and he will credit you. You won't go to prison for that, okay? You'll be rewarded for that. So giving should be premeditated, thought out in advance. 
Secondly, it's an act of worship. When you give a gift to the Lord, it's an act of worship. You're saying, Lord, I love you. I love you because you first loved me. And I know that this is nothing compared to what you gave to me, but here, I give it to you anyway. It's an offering from my heart, just out of love for you. Third, it is seen by the Lord, just like the widow's gifts were seen by the Lord, and it is rewarded by the Lord. Okay, so what about the amount of your gift? It says here in this passage, storing up as he may prosper. Now, it is interesting, many people, when it comes to preaching on or teaching on um, uh, giving, they say, oh, well, you've got to give a tithe, and a tithe is equal to 10%. I'm not sure where they got that from, because in the Old Testament, the tithe was really not 10%. It was actually much more than that. But let's just say it was 10%, okay? If a Jew living under the law gave 10%, how much should a believer give to the Lord after having received amazing grace? That's a good question. 10% is not the issue, and I don't see that anywhere in the New Testament, Rather, what you find is a a direct command in the Scripture by the Lord Jesus Christ that says, Do not lay up treasures on earth, where rust and moth corrupts and thieves break through and steal. But lay up treasures in heaven. And God wants a shift in our thinking that the riches that the world claims are so valuable here are worth nothing. Gold is is what he paves the streets in heaven with, okay? It's like earth's asphalt, okay? How many of you have gone out and found broken pieces of asphalt and said, oh, this is so precious to me, I'm going to take it home and I'm going to put it in my my safety deposit box? Nobody, nobody does that. Gold is heaven's road, all right? And what he's saying is these things have really no value on earth, But what does have value? The souls of men and women. Uh, Bibles have eternal value. Why? Because the word of God is eternal. And as we reach out and try to reach a world that is lost, we can use unrighteous mammon, that is money, to do that. We can reach out using money that God has given us or resources that God has given to us. So... The New Testament teaches to look for needs and meet the needs of others with this world's goods, to forsake all, to be content with food and clothing, and not to desire to be rich. In 1 Timothy 6, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich... Not in the bank account, but rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says this, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I think one of the drawbacks of a 10% mentality is that it becomes a, a burden. It becomes a, um, a law. And we say, oh, well, I, I have to give God again. 
my 10%, okay? We should never have that attitude in giving. It shouldn't exist. We should, we should look at it and say, how much more can I give, Lord? How much more, you know? Um, if you make yourself poor in giving to the Lord, I'll tell you, he, he won't leave you a debtor. So the question to us is this, how has the Lord prospered you? You know, how many times have, have we or the young people said, Lord, uh, or, or saints, will you please pray for me? I need a job. And so we pray and we ask the Lord that the Lord might provide them with a job. And they get a job. Do we in return give back to him? And is it in proportion to the prosperity that he has given to us? We may have a job and we say, well, saints, would you pray? Because it's really not enough to live off of. Uh, pray that I might get a raise. Pray that I might get a bonus. And the Lord gives the raise or the Lord gives a bonus. Has he prospered as, and he prospers us. Check to see if the bonus is for you or if the bonus is for others. We pray for health and safety. And he provides both for us, saving us thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in hospital bills and doctor's bills and medical bills. Do we recognize that God is actually prospering us by not having us spend our hard-earned money on that? Maybe he's giving it to you so that you might spend it on others that you might give. We pray for so many things and the Lord answers in so many ways. But whether we gain extra funds or we're saved from having to spend extra funds, do we recognize that the Lord is the giver of all good gifts? Then let each one of you lay aside as he prospers and um, store up as he may prosper. So put away the 10% calculator, okay? Um, Begin to look at things in a different way. Begin to look at things this way. If I have enough to live on, if I have enough to pay for food and a roof over my head, clothing on my back, what is the extra for? Why has God given you the extra? Are there needs? Are there others who are poor? Are there others who are in need? Are there others who could hear the gospel? Are there others who could be saved? How can you bless others with those funds? Um, the illustration is often given, you've probably heard this before, but in, uh, in Israel there are two main bodies of water. One is the um, Dead Sea and one is the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is full of life. It has all kinds of fish and it's a very productive uh, body of water. The Dead Sea is dead. <laughs> you go there and you float on the water. It's just, it's so full of, of uh, chemicals and, and uh, salts that, that nothing can survive in that. And uh, what is the difference between those two bodies of water? The Sea of Galilee has an inlet that, of water coming into it. The water is pouring into the, the lake, but it also has an outlet. And so the water is going out. And it can never have more water in it than it can contain. The Sea of Galilee is just a body of water where it just takes it all in, takes it all in, takes it all in, and it never, it never goes away. It's evaporated, you know, it evaporates. And when it comes to the principle of giving in life, you know that this is the way God deals with us. You're a body of water. Which one do you want to be? You know, do you want to be the Sea of Galilee full of life and blessing for others, or do you want to be dead like the Sea of Galilee, uh, the Dead Sea, where it just 
takes in, and, and the funds that you do have seem to just evaporate. You know, they go away. And you say, well, what did I ever do with all that money? I don't know. So it's interesting that as you give from the outlet, just like the lake, more comes in. And the Lord provides uh, because he recognizes that you're willing to give what he's given you to those who are in need. Giving should not be under compulsion. And um, we don't have every Sunday, and we have an offering that we take Sunday morning. It's voluntary, not under compulsion. We don't get up and we, we say to people, all right, folks, we need you know, an extra hundred bucks today or whatever it happens to be. Uh, we don't do that. You're completely free to give. You're completely free not to give. And uh, there's no compulsion in it. And Paul says that here too. He says that, that take the collection now. Take it now before I get there. He says that there be no collections when I come. Paul has commended them giving, but he doesn't want it done under duress or under compulsion or with no thought. He wants it to be given in a premeditated way. Paul wanted the Corinthians to put into practice the principles we've just looked at, and they wanted, he wanted them to be, the gift to be ready and available at the time he got there so that when he got there, he wouldn't have to say, come on, Corinthians, what is the matter with you? You know, I told you about this last time. Now I'm tell, I wrote you another letter, and here I am, and you still haven't done it. What is going on with you guys? You know? He actually does do that in, in the next book, but not when he's there. The lesson to be learned from this is that our giving should be regular, pre-planned, as the Lord prospers, generously and willingly. But there's also something else in this uh, section. Um, gifts should be handled with accountability. Funds should be handled by those who are approved by the church. Paul says here, and when I come, whomever you approve <coughs> excuse me, by your letters, I will send uh, to bear your gift to Jerusalem. Um, and then it says, the next point I want to make is that funds should be handled by two or more people. It says, but if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So there are at least two, and if Paul joins them, uh, at least three. It is important when gifts are given that you know that they are handled in an appropriate way. One of the things that I don't like about giving to a lot of organizations who are nonprofit organizations is, and you can do research on this, um, many of them have, have um, a huge percentage of the money that is donated going to overhead. Advertising, management. In fact, if you look at the salaries of some of the people that are uh, in charge of these organizations, you go, wow. I mean, they're not doing it for the, uh, you know, for the ministry. <laughs> they're doing it to line their pockets. And so I, I hesitate to give to large organizations that tend to, you know, have a bunch of money that is spent from each gift for just the machine of getting money out. It is our practice here at Calvary to safeguard the funds so that they are received and accounted for in the presence of at least two witnesses. When you place your gift in the offering, immediately after the meeting is over, those bags are taken and put into a safe. Okay? So they're put away safely, locked up. And then later in the day, the, the funds are counted by two unrelated brothers. And I don't know if we have always done this, but I think so. 
And uh, because I have family members that are, that are here, I just want to suggest this to the deacons publicly, that it is better to have two unrelated um, people counting the money, and the amounts of cash and checks are double-checked, and a receipt is filled out, and it is initialed by the two brothers who do the count. The funds are then deposited in a bank, and each month a comparison of the deposits are made with the bank statements to ensure that they match. Each month, the deacons meet together with an elder and go over the monthly financial statement, and they must approve it unanimously. The expenditure of standard monthly bills, like paying our mortgage, paying for lights, paying for cleaning, and so on, those bills are kind of pre-approved. And Michael, who is our uh, bookkeeper, uh, can handle those without having to ask us. But the interesting thing is every single check has to be signed by two parties. We have a double signature on every check so that um, it's, it's another safety check along the way with the money that is being given. Over the years, the amounts of funds available at Calvary have ebbed and flowed. That's a nautical term. Matt can explain that to you at the end of the, the meeting. And meaning that larger or smaller amounts have come in over, over the years. And... Um, Adjustments to spending have been determined by the amount of funds available. But it has always been our goal at Calvary to meet our obligations in a timely manner, just the regular money that needs to be spent, and to consider carefully what the Lord would have us do with the extra if there, is, if there are extra funds available. In our early days, and Kathy and Joanna, who are older like me, will remember that we never imagined that Calvary Bible Chapel would ever own a building. Um, and some of you are so young, you won't remember these events, so I'll explain history to you a little bit. We started in 1982 and uh, meeting in Howard and Kathy's home. Um, we looked at the possibility of buying a building, buying a property for us to meet in. And then we looked at the current um, interest rates that we would have to pay if we were to purchase a building. And this may shock you, but the average um, mortgage interest rate in 1991 or 92, I mean 82, pardon me, was about 16%. And that was for residential mortgages. Commercial mortgages were higher. How could we ever afford to buy with that kind of an interest rate? Now, people today are going, are you kidding? I have to pay 4% for my mortgage? Wow, that's a, that's a dream come true in those days. 16% was the average back in those days. Over the next 10 years, not until 1991, did the average mortgage price finally hit single-digit numbers, but it was still an average of 9.25%. It's an outrageous amount of money uh, to pay for uh, a loan. So as a church, we had to look at the facts. We had to look at the issues and say, you know what? It makes no sense to us financially. Uh, we can't even keep up with inflation. We, can't even, we don't even have enough money coming in to keep up with the housing prices that are going up or the, the property prices. And so we believed the Lord would have us rent and probably rent for the rest of our history. And so we said, well, then we have this extra cash that we're not putting into um, a building, we're not putting into property, we're not putting into maintenance, 
what are we going to do with it? Because it's more than we actually need. And so, as a church, we gave to the poor. We gave to the needy. We gave to full-time workers. We gave to missionaries. We gave to outreach projects. And we looked for opportunities because we said, Lord, you've blessed us with more than we need. Thanks for giving us, uh, giving us enough for rent, but let's put the rest of this into the work of the Lord. And we did. And so your gifts went out to others who were in need. We sowed generously, and the Lord generously gave back to us. And this principle of giving is seen even in what has happened to us historically. Many of you have come into the benefit of what a previous generation did. And I'm not patting ourselves on the back. We simply looked at the facts at the time and said, this is where the money should go. And the Lord said, okay, don't worry about your future. Don't worry about what what your needs might be down the way. I will make sure that you're covered. And he has done that. Never in a million years would I have thought to get a call from Bob Rutten and say, hey, why don't you come down and take a look at this building we have down here? Never, I remember telling my, my bank manager of the, the communication that we had with Mission Peak Bible Church and ourselves and the uh, amazing deal that was, was given just because we were brothers. And my bank manager, who was a believer, she says, oh, she's just like, I have goosebumps all over, and I have goosebumps on my goosebumps. But it's because of what the Lord did. And, um, and I look at that, and I say, you know what? This is what the Lord says. He who sows generously will reap generously. And the Lord provided for us more than we could ask or think. And then we're sitting in a, in a new building that the Lord has provided in addition to that. And I look at this and I think, only you could have done this, Lord. It's your amazing grace to us. Just as the church in Jerusalem saw an exodus of people, and whenever that happens in a church, it leaves fewer and fewer people to meet the obligation of the work, so too at times we have seen an exodus of people. And with the exodus of people... It is also uh, an exodus of funds that they were giving. And uh, sometimes we have not been able to, as a church, give so generously to other ministries and needs. At, at some times we have been able to only meet our obligations. Other times we've had enough t- um, to give beyond that. In uh, 2008, many of you will remember that the U.S. had a significant financial uh, economic downturn. And for that year and many of the years that followed, um, many of you and many people in the U.S. were hit financially by the downturn. Um, Today, most of us are in a better financial um, state than we were in 2008 or the year before that or the year before that. And it's always, as, it's always appropriate as a church uh, and as individual believers to once again reevaluate our stewardship and say, okay, Lord, we've gone through tough times. We've gone through difficult periods, difficult years. Now that we're through those years, let's reevaluate where we are. Let's reevaluate our stewardship and how we can be challenged to give generously once again. And so I want to leave you with four verses or four sections of, of verses 
and think about these this coming week. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says this, Honor the Lord. So I'm asking the question, what should we do? Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now I know most of you don't have barns and I know most of you don't uh, stomp out the grapes in, in vats. But the principle still remains the same. That God, you cannot outgive God. You just can't. It's impossible. And honor him, and he will honor you. Proverbs 11, 24 says this. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. I think of a farmer who scatters seeds, and he's, he's losing the seeds that he had by scattering them, and yet increases more. How? Because when the harvest comes, there's far more. And there is one who withholds more than is right but it leads to poverty. If that same farmer doesn't sow the seed and plant the seed, he's not going to have a harvest. And so think about it. It, It's true of financial giving as well, how you give to the Lord. It says, The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. In Luke 6, Jesus said, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put in your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. It's a a wonderful illustration of a a man who comes to the market and says, hey, I want to buy some grain, and here's some money for grain. And he sits down with his apron, and the guy who's giving the grain says, here. And he puts the grain on it, then he pushes it down harder and stomps it and makes it compact and compressed. And he puts more on and does that. And so what he's saying is this, you give a little bit of money, and the Lord is the one who's giving you the grain, okay? It's how the Lord reacts to us. And finally, in um, closing, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7 again, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, For God loves a cheerful giver. Think about these verses this week. Think about how you have conducted your stewardship. It is required of stewards to be found faithful. The Bible tells us that. But it's not a, it shouldn't be a burden to us. It should be a joy for us to think in terms of how we might give back to the Lord who has given so generously to us. So we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for how you gave your only begotten son. You gave us everything, and everything that we have is yours. Lord, train our hearts to follow after you. Train us to to see needs, to lift up our eyes and look on the the fields that are white to harvest. Train us, Lord, to be diligent about giving, to give hilariously, to give generously, to give without compulsion, Um, and to give um, in a planned and premeditated way. Father, we just ask that you might bless um, us as as we give. We pray that we would become like the Sea of Galilee, taking in from you, but generously giving out at the other end and, and providing for the needs of others, that we might remain fresh and vital and alive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.